A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. <laughs> Kia ora. welcome to the Kiwi Birth Tales podcast and thanks for tuning in this week. I'm your host Jordan, I'm a mum of one, soon to be two boys and a lover of all things birth and a very passionate storyteller. The goal of Kiwi Birth Tales is to empower, inform, educate and connect families from New Zealand and all over the world, talking about the things that are so often kept to ourselves or shared with only our nearest and dearest because of this taboo that seems to surround sharing stories about birth. All stories deserve to be heard, no story more important than the other, and with this podcast you'll get a variety without bias. The podcast is not intended for medical advice. I'm not an advocate for any particular mode of birth or birth care, and this platform is simply here to share these beautiful, empowering Kiwi birth tales with you all. So I hope you enjoy. This week's episode of Kiwi Birth Tales is proudly brought to you by my new course that I have just launched called Mini Kiwis First Aid. Mini Kiwis First Aid is a first aid course that is completely online and accessible anytime for parents of children under five. So if you have an under five-year-old, you absolutely need to get in on this course. The course has been designed with a beautiful Kiwi mum named Hannah and she is an extended care paramedic and unfortunately deals with these kinds of emergency situations that require first aid from parents or caregivers pretty much every day and she sees how things could be so different if um, they had been equipped with the knowledge that they needed from a first aid perspective and she also has two children under five so she is the perfect person to deliver us this course. Hannah and I sit down for the pre-recorded content and we talk through all different types of emergency first aid situations as well as some more common situations that we deal with as parents from an illness perspective and we talk through what the best approach to each situation would be. I get the chance to ask Hannah questions at the end of each video that I have as a parent because I'm not skilled in first aid although I do feel um, much more equipped now after doing the course but I ask questions that I think um, you may have as well as a parent and then Hannah answers them so it's a really nice way to record the content and then it's all available there for you online. Once you purchase the course you have lifetime access for as long as the course exists and you can re-watch each section as many times as you want. That's my favourite thing about online learning is that you retain all of the information and you can go back and re-watch things and do the course as many times as you like rather than just one time hoping that you um, retain the information in person. So really love that about online learning and I'm confident that you will too. There's a comprehensive course guide, there's quizzes on the platform that you'll do the course on and then there's also access to Hannah to ask any questions about technique or anything else that comes to mind throughout the course. So it's really, really exciting that it's finally launched. I've been working on this course for so long and I can't wait for you to get your hands on it. I just think every single parent of an under five-year-old will benefit in some way from doing this course and obviously I hope that you never need to use it but if you do, you've got the information there, you've done the course and you know how to treat an emergency situation while you're waiting for medical assistance. And I have included a sneaky little discount in this episode if you've managed to listen to the intro this far. So 
If you have listened to the intro and you want $10 off the Mini Kiwis First Aid course, then just enter the code PODDY, P-O-D-D-Y, in capital letters, and that will give you $10 off the course. I would love to hear from you. If you give it a try, let me know what you think. I hope you love it. hope you never have to use it, but um, yeah, let me know what you think. All right, let's jump into talking about this week's episode, where I speak with Robin about her pregnancy and birth stories. Robin's got quite the journey to share with us. Um, She had an ectopic pregnancy and an IVF journey, so she talks us through that. And then eventually falling pregnant with triplets, which was quite a surprise. Um, Unfortunately, one of those babies um, didn't make it, so the pregnancy was then deemed a twin pregnancy. So she talks us through that whole experience and what that was like and Then into finding out that her little boy twin had some health concerns. So they ended up having an emergency C-section at 29 weeks. And she talks us through that whole experience and what that journey was like. And then into their stay in the NICU, which was quite lengthy. Um, And she gives some really good advice if you're in a similar situation where you end up with a NICU stay that was unexpected. Or maybe you know it's coming. um, Some tips and yeah advice on on what that was like for her and some things that might be able to help you so I hope you really enjoy the episode I'd love to hear from you if you listen to it so feel free to send me a message on Instagram or to my email kiwibirthtales at gmail.com okay let's jump into the episode hi Robin thanks so much for joining me on the podcast today thank you for having me I'm really excited to share our story Awesome, no worries. Would you like to tell the listeners a little bit about you and who is in your family? Of course. So my name is Robin and I live in Snails Beach, which is just slightly north of Auckland. Uh, And I live with my husband, Charlie, and our six-month-old twins, Cora and Cooper. (laughs) Awesome, I love those names. (laughs) Thank you. That's all right. And do you want to talk us through what the journey was like to pregnancy for you guys? Yes. So uh, it was a wild ride, that's for sure. Um, I, yeah, I expected to fall pregnant relatively easily. Um, We decided to start trying to have a baby once we got married. Um, And I had previously gone off the pill about a year beforehand, um, just in preparation for that. Uh, And both Charlie and I are relatively fit and healthy people. And I just expected it, obviously, to be pretty straightforward. Everyone else that we knew had fallen pregnant really easily. And, you know, I thought it would be no different for us. Um, And so um, after about a year of trying, I started to get quite frustrated with the situation. Um, We, yeah, we, we tried sort of, you know, timing everything and all that side of things and nothing was really working and so after that 12 months I decided to book an appointment with Fertility Associates and uh, we went to that meeting and to be completely fair we sort of left feeling quite disheartened and Mm. the reason for that being was just more um, it sort of felt a bit like a money-making process and the reason I say that was that the the consultant that we have just um, she just said a few things that I personally didn't agree with, and when I had sort of questioned her on that, she you know told me that I was wrong and all that sort of thing, and so we just we just left and just didn't feel that you know positive about it. But the one thing that she had done during that meeting was an internal examination, 
and had let me know that I hadn't ovulated that month and I was about to basically so um you know we went and did what what you need to do Mm -hmm. and uh, lo and behold we got pregnant um and it was that typical you know go and see a fertility specialist and you get pregnant sort of Mm. situation (laughs) and so obviously we were really excited by that um and yeah it was just a really exciting time and um we I am quite an impatient person and so I had booked a scan prior to the typical scanning that you get done um privately and when I went to that scan uh the sonographer was a bit strange behaving a bit strangely and it got to the point where she was sort of like, oh, can you please um, just stay here? I'm just going to go and talk to my manager. And I sort of, I was like, you know, is everything okay? What's going on? And she was like, oh, I think this is ectopic. And I had never heard of ectopic pregnancies prior to this. Mm. And so while she had left the room, I did what I'm sure most people would do and went on Google <laughs> and um, saw that it can be incredibly dangerous and life-threatening and all that side of things. And so I started to panic, obviously. And uh, they came back in and walked me over to the hospital. The um, x-ray place, sorry, the ultrasound place was just opposite our hospital. So they walked me over um, and I spent a few days in hospital basically just waiting to see what had happened with this pregnancy. But um, fortunately, we didn't have to have any medical intervention uh, and the heartbeat had stopped um, and the HCG levels were dropping slowly but surely. So that sort of continued on for about six weeks before everything cleared and my HCG levels got back to zero. Mm -hmm. So that was uh, our sort of first, I guess, introduction to the situation of where Mm. things led to from there. And uh, I went and saw my doctor. Um, I started doing. I'm I'm a bit of a researcher, I guess. Like when I when <laughs> when I'm interested in something, obviously I'll you know research and that sort of things. And I started to. I mean, everyone kept telling me that ectopic pregnancies were relatively normal, but the statistics say otherwise, and all that sort of things. So I went to the doctor, and she again said to me, "No, it's fine. Don't worry about it." Um, you know, just continue on trying sort of thing. And because we'd been trying for so long and the one and only time that we had got pregnant, it was ectopic. I just felt like things weren't quite right. And so I booked in um, with a referral from my doctor to get a HSG um, scan done, which is where they put a dye through your fallopian tubes just to make sure that there's no blockages and all that side of things. And um, I went and got that done, and sure enough, my right tube was definitely blocked, and my left tube they couldn't tell because the it, it, the procedure itself was inc- incredibly painful, and um, they weren't sure whether my muscles were spasming from the pain mm. or not. And so, yeah, yeah and so um, ultimately, it sort of got to the point where they said that probably the best way to conceive a child was going to be through IVF. So that was really good to know. And I, I'm really pleased that I went and sort of did things off my own back because I don't think we would have got to that stage for quite some time if we just sort of left it as per, you know, the doctor's recommendations sort of thing. So um, we went back to Fertility Associates and we booked um, a meeting with a different consultant and she was absolutely amazing. She's one of their head specialists there, Mary Birdsell. She was just absolutely phenomenal. And um, 
because we had an issue, we were we immediately qualified for IVF, but we were then put on to a waiting list, which um, in Auckland, I think at the time, was roughly around 12 months. Yeah. And so, um, again, being the impatient person that I was, that I am, um, I, um, we decided to do it privately. So, um, fortunately, we were in a position to do so. And I think... Um, you know, I would just sort of suggest that, you know, people being aware of the waiting list and that sort of thing. So if there's any concerns, like, you know, get checked relatively quickly and that sort of things. Because I know even with unexplained infertility, you have to wait five years before you qualify and all that sort of stuff, which is a really long time when you are ready to have a child. So um, we started the procedure of IVF and that all went really smoothly. We had a really good egg collection um, and we got seven good embryos. So um, that was a really positive uh, outcome for the whole process. And we started the process of transferring them. And I I didn't really have any expectations around, I think, the first one working. I just thought, you know, my body's been pumped Mm -hmm. full of hormones. Like, it's, you know, not likely that it's going to work the first time. Um, And sure enough, it didn't. Um, So that was fine. And then we did our second and third embryo transfers. And these were all with perfectly graded embryos. And none of them were working. And our specialist uh, just sort of, we went back in for a meeting. She was like, you know, there's no real reason why this isn't working. Like you guys are really good candidates. Everything should be, everything should be working basically. So something is obviously going on. And her suggestion was to have my right uh, fallopian tube removed, which is where I'd had the ectopic pregnancy. And um, this was all happening, I think, in the first lockdown and so we had to mm. wait until we had the lockdown um come out of I think level four and go into level three so that we could get the procedure done and when I had the tube removed uh they did some histology on it so they just tested to see what was wrong with the tube and there was uh this thing called hydrosalpings and hydrosalpings is really common for recurrent miscarriages because there's fluid um, that is produced that kills embryos and so this sort of was starting to make sense as to possibly why nothing had been working previously and so we were sort of feeling positive about it and the next transfer that we did uh, was a chemical pregnancy so that was a positive thing it was the first time that we'd actually had a better outcome than obviously no um, mm. pregnancy whatsoever So that was good. And then we had um, three embryos left. And the last embryo, the seventh embryo, was um, a day seven embryo, which is not ideal, really. You want to get them to their stages between days five and six. And so we had two day six embryos left. And our specialist had decided to, it's not common practice, but she was like, why don't we try with these two embryos, um, they've probably got about a 40% chance of being successful individually. Mm-hmm. So we'll put them both in. Um, at the stage, we were coming up towards qualifying for our publicly funded IVF. And so we wanted to get rid of the embryos that we had so that we could get a full egg collection the following time round. And um, yeah, so we put the two in. I was actually, I had asked for two embryos right from the get-go. I've always wanted twins and mm-hmm. um we've got lots of twins in our family my mum's a twin and that sort of thing and so um oh, cool. I, I was all for it um, but I know it's definitely not standard practice and so um we put the two embryos in and um sure enough we got pregnant so that was really exciting 
Awesome. And do you want to take us through finding out that you were pregnant and how you were feeling and, yeah, I guess that whole stage of um, your pregnancy? Yes. Okay. So, um, yeah, so being the um, nosy and impatient person that I am, um, <laughs> I I started um, using pregnancy tests pretty early on after the embryo transfer. And we had had an HCG infusion. So they do this um, in some embryo transfers now where they put some HCG into your body and it's supposed to be um, good to, you know, get the uterus prepared for HCG and all that sort of stuff. And so for the first couple of days, you get positive pregnancy tests, but then it will taper off. And obviously if someone's pregnant, then it will start to become positive again. So from, I think about day four, I was getting positive day four after the embryo transfer, I was getting positive um, pregnancy tests and um, I won't share how many pregnancy tests they went through because it was <laughs> literally <laughs> ridiculous. I was like a little crazy yeah. person, but you know, that's <laughs> an infertility for you. Um, and yeah. so, yeah, so we, um, we were definitely pregnant. Our HCG levels were all good and the fertility clinic had me go in, I think at five weeks just to ensure that I hadn't had another ectopic pregnancy, especially because we'd put two, embryos in and uh, so we went in for the five-week scan and there was one gestational sac and I don't think that there was a heartbeat at that stage which was fine it was you know or a fetal pole it was too early so we were booked in for the six-week scan again and so I went back at six weeks and there were two gestational sacs but only one with a heartbeat so at that point we thought you know obviously both had tried to implant but only one had carried on and then Mm -hmm. I went back for a seven week scan and I'm not entirely sure why we did that but at the seven week scan there uh was there were three gestational sacs and three (laughs) heartbeats and we myself Charlie and the fertility specialist were just like oh my goodness (laughs) what is going on here so one of the embryos itself had split um, okay. and that was incredibly, uh, I would say nerve wracking to think that we were potentially having mm. triplets. Like, I mean, I am all for three children, but not at once. Um, so that was quite, uh, yeah, a stressful slash interesting time. And, and the fertility specialist, she didn't think that all three would continue growing, but we just obviously didn't know at that point. And I think by about eight or nine weeks, we went back in and one of them had stopped growing. So, um, and the other two were absolutely fine on track for, you know, looking good and all that side of things. So that was, um, yeah, the start of it. And in terms of symptoms, uh, I was, yeah, I was pretty sick. I um, was sick until I think about 17 weeks and I was on medication, but it didn't help a huge amount, but thankfully didn't end up, you know, with hyperemesis or anything like that. So, Mm. Um, that was good, and I had, um, yeah, just, like, really swollen feet right from the get-go, um, carpal tunnel, that side of things. It was quite an uncomfortable pregnancy, I guess, and mm. I always thought I would be one of these Fitzbo pregnant people, and that was <laughs> definitely not the case. Um, I, yeah, I mean, I was so sick for the first trimester that I mm. couldn't do anything anyway, and then by the time I got into the second trimester, I was just so uncomfortable that... Um, everything just sort of went out the window to be fair which is absolutely yeah. fine you know you just do what you've got to do but um, yeah it was yeah it wasn't the most um, yeah it wasn't it wasn't that great but at the same time I think when it's your first pregnancy 
because you don't know what you're getting at the end of it, you don't see it the same. Like I think if we got pregnant again, I would know that I would get a baby out of it at the end. So it kind of makes yeah. it, all more, all yeah, it, makes it more worthwhile. Worth, worth so yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. 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 And so I guess in terms of your care, um, were you under a midwife or were you under automatically an obstetrician because you had worked with f- fertility associates or what sort of happened there? Yeah, so um, we I booked a midwife straight away and we were recommended to have an obstetrician, which I did go and meet with one and I just really didn't sort of get I, – I, we just didn't vibe, I guess. And um, mm. when I sort of – when I questioned things, I – realized pretty quickly that obviously you can pay for an obstetrician privately and we were more than happy to do so. But at the end of the day, um, he may not have been at the birth on the day and we would Mm. then be under hospital care anyway and we would have a hospital obstetrician. And so I just decided that I would go with our LMC and have her and um, see how things went from the hospital obstetricians and we would, yeah, we would, sort of play it by ear at that point and it ended up turning up that that sort of happened anyway which I'll get into later but um Mm. yeah we just decided to go with your normal midwife um and I think as well because there were two babies um and I've discussed this with friends like the level of care is significantly Mm. more so than with a singleton and so we had um we had scans every four weeks. Um, I had done the NIP test and I had done that just to make sure that everything obviously was fine genetically. Um, but also I wanted to find out the sex of the babies, Mm -hmm. but, um, because there was two, we knew that there was a boy, but we didn't know whether there were two boys or a boy and a girl. So, um, that was, yeah, that was interesting. And I, I, I thought because we had, um, scans every, four weeks like I would find out um the sex of the other baby at the 16 week scan which mm. we couldn't tell because her bum was down so we couldn't see anything so we had to wait until 20 weeks to find at, out both sexes of babies <laughs> which was um you know a pain but that's okay <laughs> yeah, um yeah. so yeah so in terms of um that side of things like the care and all that sort of stuff it's definitely um treated very differently with a twin pregnancy but it doesn't need to be either if everything is relatively straightforward. Yeah, sure. Yeah. Okay. And so you you went to the seven-week scan and you had three sacs and mm-hmm. three heartbeats. So mm-hmm. what was the next scan that you had after that? Yeah, the next scan I think was at – it was either eight or nine weeks and that was where there were only two heartbeats. So we could still see the third um, gestational sac, but it was sort of decreasing in size. And so – yeah. Our um, fertility specialist basically said that it would dissolve or resolve itself. And from that point, that's when we were handed over from fertility associates. Um, yeah. And I'd already got in contact with a midwife at that point. Um, and yeah, that's where we had sort of started the process of whether we would find an OB or not. Um, yeah. But yeah. Cool. And I guess, yeah, in terms of the rest of your pregnancy, do you want to talk us through um, what your second and third trimesters were like and yeah, any extra scans or anything else that sort of popped up throughout those trimesters um, mm. that's important to your story? Yeah, so um, we only got to the second trimester, um, through the second trimester. So um, we everything was just fine. I mean, I had the, all the sort of 
previous symptoms that I'd um, explained and that I was pretty uncomfortable. I mean, I'm relatively short. I'm five foot three and my husband's six and a half foot. So um, I was feeling like these babies were just <laughs> really um, taking over the world from a, yeah. <laughs> from um, a body perspective. And um, I was really uncomfortable from that side of things. But other than that, it was pretty straightforward. I, I didn't have any issues or complications with gestational diabetes or preeclampsia or anything like that. But because we were having such frequent scans, um, I think at the 24-week scan, uh, we had noticed that uh, the little boy had been overtaken in terms of size by our girl, which was um, nothing to be concerned about at that point. We just thought, you know, it is what it is. She's obviously hmm. doing really well, that sort of thing. And both babies had their own placentas, so there wasn't any of the twin-to-twin transfusion um, syndrome going on or anything like that. So that was fine. Um, and then when I went in for a 28-week scan, um, that was where everything sort of went a bit haywire. So um, I had gone in for the 28-week scan and basically I was admitted to hospital at that point because we had uh, abnormal Dopplers for my little boy Cooper and um, he also – um, he was yeah his, he had growth restriction he was sitting I think at about the fifth centile at that stage and so yeah they, they were concerned about that side of things um, and yeah so at 28, 28 weeks um, I was admitted to Auckland Hospital and that was basically the start of everything sort of um, going from there and so we'd even with like, you know, antenatal classes and all that side of things, like I had started your course. Um, and I think mm-hmm. we got through about eight sessions um, before, we, before <laughs> I went into hospital. Um, and I'd previously read um, Ina Mae Gaskin's book and that side of things. But um, yeah, everything sort of got cut short um, at that stage. So yeah. 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 And so what happened from there? Like, did, were you kept in hospital or what further testing did they do? And yeah, do you want to talk us through that? Yes, so um, I was kept in hospital and basically um, I was kept in there so that they could do CTG um, monitoring, which is the baby's heartbeats and your uterine um, contractions on a twice daily and then also scans every two days just to check to see how Cooper's Dopplers were going. And um, I was given steroids and things like that at that stage because it was likely that I was going to have the babies early. Um, And so, um, yeah, that monitoring went on um, for about a week before I had my waters break. And uh, we thought it was Cooper. Um, Obviously, he had been the sort of problem child, I guess. Mm. And um, when we had the scan, we figured out that it was actually Cora and she was really, she'd been really low for quite a while. And so um, my understanding is, you know, when waters break that you're induced pretty much straight away. And that's normally the case for people at term. And so for me, they were just, give, they just gave me antibiotics and I was basically, you know, continue bed rest and that sort of things. And the ward that I was in, in the hospital, um, it was full of women who'd had uh, their waters break really early. So some people were in there at, you know, 23, 24 weeks. So um, I was sort of prepped by most of the obstetricians at the hospital um, that it was likely that it would be a C-section. Um, and that was absolutely fine. Obviously, Cooper's health um, was the most, you know, was a priority at this point. And so we just continued on with bed rest um, and, that was fine. I was also offered um, an amniocentesis test and 
this is quite common, I think, in early pregnancy, um, if, they're sus- if they're suspected that there's something wrong. Um, and the reason they'd offered me this with uh, Cooper was that he had a little bit more amniotic fluid than what they would expect. Um, he obviously also had growth restriction issues. And one of the obstetricians at the hospital thought that he was holding his hand in a really odd way. And so because of this, they had offered to do the test. And when I sort of questioned them on why we would do that, Mm. it was quite confronting because they had used the terminology of termination and it was just quite intense. It was a Mm. really intense conversation, especially, you know, 28 weeks into the pregnancy, whether we would be doing something with this baby, if there was something wrong with him. And, um, the, I guess the tricky part of it was that there was no way that we would probably get the results back from this testing prior to the babies being born. Like they, the hospital and the doctors didn't think that we would get that far along. Um, and so we decided not to go ahead with it. And I had sort of said that I, it wouldn't change the outcome of whether I wanted to have the baby mm. or not. Um, and also, we had because we'd had so many scans prior to this, we had seen him moving his hand around in previous scans. And so we didn't think that there was anything going on with his hand. So at this stage, it was just to do with growth. And we knew that that was because of the Dopplers and the amniotic fluid. I mean, sometimes babies have more amniotic fluid and it's not necessarily Mm -hmm. because of anything. So I'm really glad that we didn't um, go through with that because amniocentesis tests can also push you into labor. Um, so yeah, so we decided against that, um, and yeah, and that's sort of where everything started to kick off. I think I was in hospital for about eight days and that's when, um, I started to go into labor basically. Yeah. Yeah. And so what happened from there? I mean, what were you, how are you feeling, I guess, from a, a mental health perspective and then, yeah, do you want to take us through what happened next? Yeah, so um, I actually think that going into hospital and basically being forced to go on bed rest was actually really beneficial. Like, I'm quite a busy Mm. person, and I was still working in hospital. Like, I obviously, um, I was only 28 weeks. I was still expecting to be working for at least probably another four weeks. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Before I went mm-hmm. on um, maternity leave. And so I was working um, in the hospital. My company was really supportive of me and that side of things. And so um, that side of things was fine. It was keeping me busy as well. And so I think I'd had a conversation with my boss at about midday um, on the day saying that I'd hand over all my notes and everything the following day. And I'd woken up with a sore back and I didn't really think um, anything of it. And this is probably my naivety around labor <laughs> and, and everything. But as the day sort of progressed, my back was getting quite sore and I ended up having a nap, um, which I don't typically do during the day. And um, I woke up and I was like, oh my goodness, my back is actually really sore. And 
I was messaging my best friend and she was like, I think that you should probably tell the doctors. I was like, oh, no, it's fine. Like, it's just a sore back, whatever. Um, And it got to the point where I was like, okay, actually, it's quite sore. And again, her and my husband were like, I think you should probably tell the doctor. Mm. Um, So I um, told the doctors and uh, they decided to put the CPG monitoring on me. And um, the baby's heartbeats were fine, but the uterus... um, measurements were constant contractions and we had it I think she was a trainee midwife and she was like are you feeling fine like do you need pain relief and I was like no I'm fine like I'm just it's quite sore but it's fine like I can handle it um and she was sort of like oh the machine there's something going on with the machine like it was just a bit all a bit strange sort of thing and so eventually another midwife came in and she was like I'm just going to call a doctor in because this is showing you know constant movement here um and again constantly asking me if I needed pain relief and that side of things and it got to the point where I was like okay I'll have a couple of Panadol like it is quite you know sore and so um the doctors came in and they um checked my cervix and at that stage um I was four centimeters and they could see the baby's head and mm-hmm. um, it just became a mad rush at that point, basically, to get me into theatre. And, um, yeah, it was really nice. We had um, – the obstetrician came in, and she asked if I did want to deliver them vaginally. And um, it was really nice that I think that she had asked that because she knew that that was obviously my preference. Mm. And to be given the option, um, I think – made all the difference like at the end of the day I chose not to purely because of Coop and we didn't want to put him under any stress um, when we were delivering him and um but it was just nice to have the option and so because I was only 29 I was 29 plus two at that stage and so I was given steroids for the baby's lungs and I was also given um two lots of magnesium sulfate and that is if anyone's had it, they'll understand it's horrific. It's, you literally feel like mm. your body body's on fire. Um, and so as we were going into theatre, I was given magnesium sulfate. And I think that's to help with the baby's um, brain development and that side of things. Um, and I had been quite apprehensive about having a C-section. Um, I'm not – I mean, the idea of having a surgery while you're awake and mm. that side of things just freaked me out completely. And so I had sort of – Um, express that concern to the doctors and they were all really lovely about it and you know reassuring me that everything would be fine the curtains would be up I wouldn't be able to see anything uh, and that side of things so that was um, fine and because there were twins um, they didn't know how long the section would take and so I was given both an epidural and a spinal tap and um that was all good. And as soon as I had the epidural, actually, it completely calmed me down. Um, I didn't feel, I just felt amazing at that point. And um, which was really nice because I think it just um, made the whole procedure um, a lot more positive as well. Um, <clears throat> so, yeah, so we had that and um, Cora was born and um I could hear her screaming and crying and that was all really hmm. um, lovely. And then Cooper was born two minutes later, but he didn't cry. And that was, um, yeah, that was quite, I was like, is everything okay? What's going on? And it took a while for people to actually respond to me. And because obviously of the gestation, um, 
there was no, you know, skin to skin or anything like that. Both babies had NICU teams waiting for them to take them into incubators and, um, you know, get them looked after and all that side of things. And I think, um, like, I don't have any negative thoughts about that side of the birth. I think mm. when, when you're so early in gestation, obviously the most important thing is actually just making sure that the babies are okay. So um, they were taken off um, and that was fine. Um, Charlie went and had a look at the babies and um, met them and that sort of things while I was still being stitched up and then went into recovery. Um, so that was all uh, fine and happy days. We were parents. It was, you know, all good. Um, I do, we did go back up to the NICU rooms um, that night, but I don't recall it. I think I was just, you know, so out mm. of it on all the medication and that sort of things and um, met the babies, but I just, yeah, I don't remember that. And um, that was fine. And then I went back um, and we started to try and get some colostrum and that side of things. And strangely, Charlie went home that night and I don't really know why he went home mm. it was so weird like we just had these babies and like I think it was like three or four in the morning and I was like why has he gone home like this is just the weirdest <laughs> thing um so yeah so that was fine and then um the next morning um I started to I got wheeled up to the babies and um yeah that was I guess the start of our Niku journey really which was a yeah. really long one yeah wow I mean just can't even imagine like the having babies at 29 weeks and then, you know, you're recovering from a C-section and they're in NICU. So do you Mm. just want to take us through, I guess, how you were feeling um, in those initial couple of days and then also um, give us some insight into your NICU stay and Mm. um, how the babies were doing at that stage? Yeah. So I was feeling fine. I think, um, Recovery wise from the section, I recovered really well initially. And um, the first sort of five days, I was feeling really good. I was off the pain medication and that side of things, um, which was really positive. Um, and I I think just knowing, obviously, because they were so preemie, they were absolutely in the right place. Um, and all I, I can't fault anyone at the hospital with the level of care that I had. And they were all amazing with the babies. Um, so everything was fine. Like I think um, it felt really surreal as well. Like obviously being only six months in the pregnancy, um, I don't think I'd mentally prepared to have them that early. Um, mm. Like I knew that they would come early, but just not that early, I guess. And so we were sort of thrown into this whirlwind of, oh my gosh, we've got babies now. And um, that was fine. Like there was everything, everything was going really well, um, until about day five. And so with Niku, um, because we had twins, we had our own room and, um, that was really nice because we could have the babies out for cuddles and all that sort of things. And we didn't have to share it with um, anybody else. Like it was just our own sort of little haven, which was really lovely. And, um, the nurses and the consultants were all absolutely amazing, And then it got to um, day five of the babies being born and the one of the head consultants started to have a conversation with us and she was like, oh, do you just want to come into this room? We just want to have a conversation with you. And I was like, oh, no, it's fine. Like, we can talk here. There's no, you know, there's no issue with us having a chat in the room. Um, She was like, okay. And she started to talk to us about the fact that at a routine head ultrasound, Cooper had had a brain bleed and 
it just sort of took me for six and I sort of thought at the time oh my gosh okay actually let's go into this room what's happening here and um that conversation continued um basically Cooper had had um a grade four brain bleed on the left side of his brain which is the worst type of bleed that you can have and um it was horrible obviously and we just didn't really know what the outcome of that would be basically the doctors couldn't give us um an outcome what would happen they just could tell us that at this stage there it was likely that there would be an impact um at some stage and probably something to do with his motor skills Mm -hmm. and so um that was obviously just really intense I think um you know day five hormones were probably all over the show as well and um yeah it was just yeah it was a full-on conversation and so we sort of had that and then um we were trying to process that and I think the following day um we his tummy was a little bit swollen and um the doctors were like oh we might just do a scan on his tummy and it turned out that he had had a bowel perforation so his little um intestines had perforated just due to not being mature enough and so he was taken in for um, his first surgery at day it must have been day seven at that stage so it was a really intense couple of days and I um I mean I'm a really positive person and that sort of things but it did it was it was intense like it, I, mm. there's no there's no other word for it like it was horrific and I wouldn't wish yeah. it you know on anyone um and so yeah. <clears throat> we sort of um yeah that was that was a really full-on week and then um it sort of progressed from there he just couldn't catch a break he had infections and all that side of things and throughout all this Cora was your absolute textbook preemie there was not a thing going on with her she was Mm. happy as Larry just obviously needed to feed and grow and so that was really nice as well not having um, I guess a little bit of sunshine in the situation with with one baby that you could focus on when the other one was also you know like it was just it was really Mm. awful what was going on with Cooper but we had something nice going on with Cora as well which was um conflicting but also really nice as well so um yeah so that sort of went on for a little while and eventually he started to turn a corner and um get better and um I think as well like I've got a friend who had had a baby in Niku, she was really, really small, and he had sort of said to me, um, "Don't, don't underestimate how resilient these babies are," and that really, really helped with everything that was mm. going on with Cooper. And so, um, they are like it's incredible what they can handle at such early stages as well. Mm. Um, and so we were in Niku for I think just under a month and um, once they move out of the level three which is the most intensive care part of Niku they then move into level two and because at level two um, they were 32 weeks at that stage we then moved over to a different hospital and we went into the Skibu which is the special care baby unit Um, and we were there I think for a further two months so all in all, we um, were in the hospital for, I think, three months and one day because I was counting every single day. <laughs> um, yeah. And, um, you know, we started um, our breastfeeding journey in uh, Skibu and um, that was quite interesting in the sense that I had thought um, – I had no preference really to how we fed the babies, especially being two – 
Um, like I wasn't really, I wasn't hugely attached to whether they needed to be breastfed. Obviously it was my, like it was ideal if they were, but mm. there was no preference fed is best sort of situation. Um, <clears throat> but both of them um, started breastfeeding well. I thought initially that Cora was feeding really well um, because she was quite, she had quite a strong latch, I thought, but actually once Cooper had started breastfeeding, because he was a little bit further behind just because of all the complications he'd had. Um, I realized quite quickly that actually Cora didn't have a good latch. She was, it was, I thought it was working well because it was actually quite painful, but that wasn't, that was because she had a bad latch rather than oh, actually okay. a good latch. And so yeah. because Cooper was feeding well, um, it was really good. We could, we could quickly um, use a nipple shield for Cora um, to, try and get her feeding to be better and that side of things. So both babies were feeding really well um, and doing really, yeah, really well on that front. Um, but I had wanted to also encourage bottle feeding at some stage just so that I could have help at home. Um, <clears throat> and so I think probably about 37, 38 weeks, we started to introduce a bottle to Cora um, just because she had not been as good with her latch, um, we decided to start with her. Um, and that, that also went relatively well. It took a lot longer than I expected it to with the bottle feeding. And um, I think at that stage as well, like I was starting to feel quite stressed out by my milk supply. So at that point, the babies had been exclusively breastfed and um, I was needing to produce, I think, about... 1.2 1.3 liters a day and it was just getting to a point where my supply was not really keeping up with the babies and because I was leaving Skaboo every night to go home I was having to have enough in stock before I got back in the morning um to replenish the you know the milk and all that sort of thing and it was just getting too chaotic to be fair and mm. um I yeah so I I made the decision at that point to start introducing some formula um and we started with Cora again just because Cooper's had had, had you know gut issues and that side of things um and so we started that process um there and um yeah mostly breast milk fed but also um formula was introduced at that point um <clears throat> so yeah after three months and one day we were allowed out um which was just amazing um yeah it was just so good to get home and I think the silver lining of the Nipu and Skaboo time that we had was by the time we were ready to go home um I was completely confident with the babies um I knew exactly what I needed to do with them if something went wrong mm. um and also they were already in a routine so things um you know I, I I'm a firm believer that there's always a silver lining and things and that was definitely it especially with first-time parents and twins and mm. um <clears throat> to have the support that we did when they were born and that sort of things it just I think it was a very um easy transition into coming home um, compared to what it would have been had I have you know gone to term with them and um, yeah. just come home with two babies and not knowing what on earth to do with them you know yeah you do learn so much I guess um, from being in those types of places right like I was only in the skaboo with Jai for a week but mm. I honestly feel like how would I have known what to do with them yes <laughs> I know home? it's crazy yeah, and so even- I can relate to that 
Exactly. Like it's just, and even the mothers that you meet in Skibo and things like that, like that, um, because we missed out on doing any antenatal classes and that sort of things. And I had only wanted to do that. I was going to do an online hypnobirthing course anyway, but because I wanted to do the antenatal classes to meet mums. And because we sort Mm -hmm. of missed out on that, um, Bean and Skibu and Niku actually has provided some really great friendships out of it as well. And it's from with mums that have also had like preemie babies and that side of things. And so that's been um, a really positive part of it as well. So I think you just, you do, you learn so much. The nurses are amazing. The doctors are amazing and that side of things as well. And so you do just end up, I think, with a higher level of confidence with the baby, especially as first time parents. Mm. Yeah, yeah. And how did you find things once you got home? Um, were there any concerns about Cooper or sort of, you know, obviously them being so early about their development or what sort of happened yes. from there? Yeah, so um, coming home was obviously great. Um, at the time, they but they both had feeding tubes still at that point, um, but both of them used to rip them out all the time. And after about, I think, a week, we just decided to leave them out and um, they were getting enough milk from their bottles and that side of things at that point. And because of um, Cooper's brain bleed and that side of things, he, he actually, despite everything that's gone on with Cooper, he's been on the really, um, he's been on the optimal side of all the bad things that have happened to him. Like that things mm. could have been much worse with the brain bleed. Like most situations um because there's swelling in the brain with a brain bleed some babies will need to have shunts put in which um drain excess fluid and things like that and Cooper has managed to avoid all of the surgeries and things that have been possible with all of his different um situations so Mm. he from from a developmental side of things we um have support we have a development lady who comes and sees us once a month and um, just keeping an eye on what's going on with him and that sort of things. And at this stage, he's not doing anything that is of concern, um, which is really positive because um, he's starting, he's, they're four months corrected now. And so they're starting to, you know, do things, like, they're starting to actually be a bit more interactive. And now is the time yeah. that we, we would start to see if there's anything going on with him. And so, yeah. so, so far, so good in touch wood that that continues on. But at the end of the mm. day, no matter what the situation, you know, Cooper will be Cooper and we'll just deal with whatever the outcome yeah. of that is. Um, yeah. But we have a lot of support in that, in that side of things. We also have dietitians coming to see us because he's dairy free. Um, and so the whole experience, I think, um, and this is not the same for everyone, and this is where I think not just um, a twin pregnancy, but because of the complications that we have had and the fact that we spent such a long time in Niku and Skibu, we have had a huge amount of support and this I think is what I, I was having a discussion with some friends about this the other day and this is the level of care I think that everyone should be mm. sort of given access to because it's there um, but it's just that we've gone through a certain process that we've ended up with that level of care and um, it just we just need more of it, I think. And for for people, you know, with single babies, and you know, everyone deserves the same level of care because that would completely mm. change a lot of people's um, outcomes and you know how they perceive you know the birth process and all that side of things as well. Yeah, 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 for sure. And I guess um, from an acute perspective, if we've got 
parents who are listening to this podcast who either end up with babies in NICU or mm-hmm. have babies in NICU right now, I'd mm-hmm. love to sort of hear if you've got any advice or tips mm-hmm. or words of wisdom or just something that you wish you knew before that journey started that might be helpful to someone, yeah, going through something similar. Yeah, um, I mean, I didn't even, I the, something like that never even crossed my mind that we would be yeah. in that situation. And so um, I think um, we just dealt with everything each day as it comes. And I think that that's really important. Like I think, um, I guess the pieces of advice that I would give is there's, there's NICU pages that you can join on Facebook and those are really helpful in terms of um, you can ask questions about the situation that you're in and does anyone have any previous experience with those types of scenarios happening to their babies, um, which is really helpful. I think uh, making friends with other mums in um, the NICU or SCABU areas um, is, again, another beneficial thing because you've got an outlet to talk to someone who's mm. going through the same experience and you you really do um, benefit from having people to talk to, I think, as well. And um, yeah. I think as well, like, while we were going through the um, the process that we went through with the babies, there were several occasions where, uh, like, at one stage we ended up in PICU, which is the paediatric intensive care unit, because Cooper had a hernia repair as well. And um, it got a bit more complicated than it would typically, but we went in there and it's really eye-opening t- in the sense that there is, despite everything that we've been through, there was always someone going through something tougher. And mm. I think um, when you go through these different units, it does often put things into perspective. And that's not to say, like, that's that was my that was my situation and that was how we experienced it. And I, I felt for the people that were going through tougher times and some people will be in that situation themselves. And, you know, there's nothing that can prepare you for that. And it's an awful thing to be going through when your baby's Mm. really sick and there are really awful scenarios that can occur. But I think that if you, there's plenty of support that's given, they have counselors, they have a lot of people around to help guide you through, um, that sort of stage and I think if um you need it just absolutely take them up on that talk to people but I think as well um ask questions because I think when you completely understand what's going on with your baby and you understand what procedures they're planning on doing and you feel confident that you have that clear understanding then it makes the process a lot easier and I know in some circumstances, especially because the doctors are often very medical in their terminology and that side of things, if you don't understand it and just not to be intimidated to ask them the the questions that you need to feel confident in knowing what's happening because that's Mm. really, really important as well. So, yeah, I just think, um, yeah, being really good advocates for your baby. And the the one thing that I have to say was really um, positive is that the doctors and consultants and nurses, everybody – throughout uh, the units they trust the parents opinion um, on anything when it comes to the babies like they will ask you if the babies are doing anything differently or baby Um, like I was the first person to notice that Cooper had had seizures at one point and they they jump on anything that the parents say is abnormal so they really do um, listen to what you've got to say like you know your baby best you're watching your baby you know the whole time that you're there versus when they pop in every now and then and that side of things so I think um just being yeah being really comfortable with being an advocate for your baby and 
not yeah don't be afraid to ask the questions that you need to ask basically mm. yeah yeah for sure I think that's great advice thank you and is there anything else that you want to include in your story that we haven't covered yet or yeah just anything else that you think is important to share um no I don't think there's too much I think the only thing that I yeah would say is that I just think that um if you feel like you need um more you know like it's the same with like ultrasounds and things like that I think um just being confident enough to really um speak up for what you want like it's your body it's your Mm. baby and I know that this is um quite a common theme um and even some of the podcasts that you've been having recently and things like that like people I think are starting to get a bit more confident with what they're wanting and and that side of things and I think that we just uh, the more the more that people ask for certain things the more likely it is to happen and I think you know, there's a lot going on um, in the health industry and that sort of things around midwives and all that sort of stuff. So hopefully things start to get better, but we can also be the change by asking for those things and, and yeah. I guess demanding the level of care that we expect to be normal for everybody. So yeah, yeah I, th- I think that would be the only sort of thing is just, you know, make sure that you get what you want as much as you possibly can. So yeah. 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 For sure. Awesome. Well, thank you so much, Robin, for coming on the podcast and sharing your story with us. I think yeah, it'll be really beneficial to parents out there, particularly those who might um, either end up in a similar situation or have been through something similar. So just Mm. super grateful you're willing to share. Thank you. No, thank you for having me. Thanks so much for listening to this week's episode of Kiwi Birth Tales. I hope you have enjoyed it. And I know that Robin had a lot to share in that story. So I'm super grateful that she was willing to come on the podcast. Another reminder that this week's episode is brought to you by my new course, Mini Kiwis First Aid, which is an online first aid course for parents of under fives. I've popped a link in the show notes if you want to go and check out the course. And don't forget that you can use the exclusive discount PODDY, P-O-D-D-Y, for $10 off the course. All right, I will be bringing you another awesome episode next week. So have a good week.